This is Soul Stories, where we tell real-life stories that, yeah, touch your soul. I'm Rabbi Shlomo Landau. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to Soul Stories, a podcast of stories that touch the soul. Welcome to Episode 1. David, or as he was known in his Hasidic circles in Brooklyn, David was a very successful middle-aged businessman. He had a great wife, wonderful children, some of them still small. He was prominent and well-loved in his community, and life was great. When one day, David begins to feel a little bit weak. He just doesn't have the energy that he usually had. He wasn't himself. He figured he needed a break, but when the condition didn't pass, and he was getting weaker, and he was losing his energy, and something wasn't right, he made an appointment with his primary care physician. The physician did a comprehensive exam and sent Dovid for additional testing. A few days later, the physician calls him up and says to him, Dovid, come into my office, we need to talk. The physician gets right to the point and shares with him that sadly he has an advanced form of advanced stage of cancer and that he needs immediate treatment. But he says, all is not lost. I'm going to refer you to a very prominent oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City. He's a miracle worker, and hopefully he can work a miracle. And thus begins a journey, a challenging journey, that Duvid never imagined would be his. He's admitted to the hospital, and they begin a rigorous regiment of treatment. The days turn into weeks, and the weeks turn into months. And whatever was left of David, the treatments were sapping him of. And slowly but surely, he was turning into a shadow of, him former, of his former self, a skeleton, One day, after a particularly rigorous bout of therapy, David said to himself, this is crazy. I have zero quality of life. I'm shackled to my hospital bed. I can't spend time with my wife and my children and the people that I love. And these treatments are not making me better. They're just making me worse. I can't anymore. Tomorrow, he says, I have an appointment with the social worker. I'm going to ask to call hospice. At least I'll live out the rest of my life with quality. At least I'll be able to spend time with my family at home, with my children. Like this, I'm just going to die in my hospital bed with nothing to show for it. That was his resolve. At least perhaps he'd have a few good months before he left this world. The next morning, before David had a chance to meet with the social worker, there was a knock at the door. Standing at the door was the head of oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital. David, he said, may I enter? I wanted to talk to you about your condition. Of course, David said. And thus, the um, doctor shared with him that he'd been reviewing his charts and that he did not feel that the treatments had the appropriate response and that they must do something else. It was time to pivot. He says, David, I only have one option left for you. He says, what's that? He says, there was an incredibly invasive surgery where we literally open you up and we go into every internal organ, and we search all around if there's any cancer inside of it, and we clean you out. It's the only thing that I could recommend, but it comes at a very high risk. A, it may not be successful because we could miss something. And even if we are successful, it could kill you. And even if we're successful and it doesn't kill you, the recovery process is so difficult that you may not make it through the recovery process. What do you think? Is this an option, or should we call hospice? And David jumps out of his bed and he grabs the head of oncology by the lapels of his medical coat. And he says to him, 
I'm a fighter. And if I have a fighting chance, I'm going to take it. When could we have the surgery? Today? Tomorrow? Oh, says the doctor. Slow down. We first have to make sure there's a slot. You're going to need to undergo a battery of tests. But if you qualify and you pass them, I'm willing to give it a chance. And next, the, and this is what happened a week later, surrounded by his wife and his children, his parents and his siblings. David said goodbye to everybody. He said, Vidui, the confession. And with a prayer on his lips, he went under. The doctor worked tirelessly, heroically, for the next 10 hours. They literally went through David's inner organs one at a time, cleaning, trying to purge. After 10 hours, miraculously, they wheeled him out of the operating theater, more dead than alive, but yet still alive. The recovery process was grueling. It was nothing that David had ever imagined. It was painful and it was horrific. But slowly but surely, David began regaining his strength. And miraculously, at the same time, the indicator started coming through that he was cancer-free. Miracle of miracles. Two months later, David walked out of the front door of Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital on his own two feet with a t-shirt that said, I am a Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center survivor. He was cured. It was time for a new lease on life. David went home. He wasn't himself, but slowly but surely, he began to reacclimate into regular life. A month later, David decided to throw a Saida, a Thanksgiving, a gratitude party for everybody involved in his very arduous journey. His family, his friends, and yes, he also invited the staff at Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital, the nurses, the residents, the orderlies, and of course, the doctor, the head of oncology, the man that had saved his life. They all showed up, and it was a joyous and very emotional Sudasaida Thanksgiving party. There were speeches, there was music, there was a catered delicious meal. At the end, the last speech was none other than Dovid's himself. And he got up there with tears in his eyes, and he thanked the Rabbi Shalom, the master of the universe, for a brand new lease of life. And he committed to living his life on a higher plane because he realized how fleeting life is. He thanked from the bottom of his heart his wife, his rock, his children, his friends, his extended support network. And he thanked profusely the incredible medical staff at Memorial Sloan Kettering for literally providing him with life-saving care. But he saved perhaps the best for last. He saved the thanks for the doctor, the head of oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And he got up there and he said something that shocked everybody, but it shocked the doctor more than anyone else. He said, you think I'm standing up here today and I'm going to thank you for your heroic medical treatments, for literally saving my life with the surgery. I'm not going to thank you for that. That's part of your job. That's your experience. That's why you went into the field. This is one of your numbers. I can't thank you for that. I should. I do, but that's not my main thank you. He says, Doctor, I'm going to thank you for something that you have no idea about. The doctor looks at him perplexed. He says, the night before I was about to throw in the towel and call for hospice, when I decided I needed quality of life over life itself, I heard a conversation right outside my hospital room. And I knew it was you because I've met you before. And you were having a conversation with a number of your fellows. And this is, you, were dis- you weren't even discussing me. You were discussing a guy three rooms over who I had gotten to know we'd been on the floor together long enough. 
And some of the fellows said, we've been reviewing his charts. He's terminal. There's no hope. And you looked at them and you said something so powerful. You said for most people there'd be no hope. But I happen to have gotten to know this guy, the guy in the room three three doors over. And I realized that he's a fighter. And when a patient is a fighter, there's no way to know who's going to win and who's going to lose that fight. I'm not giving up on him. And I heard those words. And I said, tomorrow, I'm planning on calling hospice. Am I a fighter? Can I tell myself that I gave myself an opportunity to have, quote unquote, the last fight? And I made up on that, that moment that if someone were to give me the opportunity to fight that fight, I would get in the rink and give it all I had so at least I'd know that if I go down to my grave, I fought that fight with every last iota of strength that I contain. Doctor, the next morning, before I had a chance to call hospice, you came in. Remember you offered me this quote-unquote life-saving surgery? And what was my reaction? I jumped out of bed and I grabbed the lapels of your medical, of your lab coat, something no one probably ever did before because you realized I'd resolve myself that if I had the opportunity to fight a fight, I would do it because I'm a fighter and fighters don't go out down without the fight. And look, doctor, he said, you saved my life, not even with the surgery because you kindled a new spark of hope. And look where we are today. I'm surrounded by my amazing wife who, thank God, is not going to be a widow, by my children who won't be orphans, all because of that conversation that you unknowingly had with a number of your fellows. The doctor began to sob and to cry bitterly. David went over. Imagine the scene, this Hasidic guy with curly pace and a long beard, a long black coat. He puts his arm around the doctor, a high medical profession, professional, and he says to him, doctor, it's emotional, no? And the doctor stands up. And he confesses something. He says, you may think I'm crying because I'm inspired. You may think I'm crying because of the opportunity to kindle hope. That's not why I'm crying. These are tears of tremendous sadness. The tears of pain and remorse. For three decades, I've been a top oncologist. You know how many times I told my patients that there was no hope? I extinguished the candle of hope. Imagine if I would not have extinguished that. If I would have told them, listen... I don't know you, but if you've got the fight inside you, maybe you could win. Imagine how many more patients I could have saved. Imagine how many more families would still be whole at this point. But sadly, and callously, and perhaps sterilely, what did I do? I told them, I think it's the end. And it actually was the end. And the doctor began to cry a whole new set of fresh tears. David who is a Hasidic guy and didn't know what to do, walks over to the doctor again. He gives him a hug and he says, Doctor, where I'm from here in Brooklyn, we don't just sit here and cry about things. We do something. We act. Doctor, he says, you have your medical staff here. Commit that you're going to change your ways. That going forward, you will never extinguish the light of hope. That going forward, you will bolster and you will inspire patients who may not have much left to them because you never know. Look what happened to me. Look, how, look at my life that was saved. You could do it, doctor. The next three decades, your numbers could be through the roof just by changing your perspective. Very hesitatingly and haltingly and difficult for the doctor, he stood up and he says, David has taught me a life lesson which no one else ever taught me before. I commit, God willing, I'm going to try to bring up, I'm going to try to inspire I'm going to try to kindle 
the candle of hope in all my patients, and who knows how many human lives I could sustain and preserve. Ladies and gentlemen, we have no idea about the power of our words. A conversation, an innocent conversation, the doctor had no idea that David was listening, yet it saved his life and impacted the hundreds of thousands of lives that would have been impacted by David's possible early demise. Our words are so powerful. Our tradition teaches us, hachaim v'hamaves, biyad halashon, life and death, are in the hands of our tongue. We can build and we can destroy. Which brings me to the next beautiful personal story that happened a bunch of years ago. It was one of those days in New Jersey where the weather service was forecasting a mega blizzard. Feet of snow were supposed to fall, gale force winds, blizzards, whiteout conditions. But we had time to prepare two or three days before the mother of a storm would hit our town. And I did what all good dads and good husbands and good people did. I asked my wife for a list of stuff that I could get from ShopRite, the local mega supermarket, because who knows, we may be hunkered down for a few days till they clean the roads, and even then, it'll be icy and it'll be treacherous. And she gave me the typical list. There was macaroni and hot cocoa and all the flour so she could bake and maybe a flashlight or two and some matches and candles. Anything we may need, we could lose power like we do often. The problem is I show up to ShopRite. I come into the parking lot and there are no spots in this massive parking lot because every other person in central Jersey had exactly the same idea as me. Finally, I find a parking spot. I make my way into the store. Finally, I find a shopping cart and I begin my purchases in a packed store. I get everything together. I put it into my cart and then the next stage begins, waiting online. And I wait online probably 15 minutes. It is what it is. Why get upset? Why get frustrated? Finally, it's my turn to take my items and to put them on the counter and have the cashier begin to ring them up. And she begins, bloop, 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 bloop. We know how, we know the, we know the game. We know the rodeo. And I take one look at the cashier and I noticed that she looked so beat. She looked so shot. And I looked at her and I said, you look so tired. She says to me, you have no idea. I've been standing on my feet for five hours. I haven't even taken a bathroom break. Look at these lines. Look at all the people that need food before the blizzard is dumped on this area over here. I can't just walk away from this. So I'm working, and I'm working extra hours, and I'm working really hard. And I said to her, thank you so much. If my family is stuck, if we're locked down, and we're able to eat, it's only because of good people like you. I really appreciate it. And that was the end of our conversation. 15 seconds. 20 seconds. Within 60 seconds, while she's still ringing up my items, a woman four aisles over, who I'd never met before, I don't think I had, looks at me. And she sees that I'm bagging in the disposable plastic bags. And in a shrill and nasal voice, in front of the packed supermarket, she says, oh my gosh, four aisles over. A rabbi that uses plastic bags? Doesn't he care about the environment? Aren't rabbis supposed to be role models? And I'm sitting there and I'm like shaking. No, I was just using plastic. I do care about the environment. I'm just like a regular guy. And it's quiet around me. Everyone's looking at me. I don't know what to do. My cashier, 
who I'd never met before, looks at that woman and says to her, I'm not going to say the exact words, but like, be quiet. He's a good person. Don't you talk that way about him. Everyone looks at me and the talking resumes. And she saved my face. I thanked her profusely. And I remember rolling my card out and thinking to myself, what just happened here? I never met this cashier once in my life. Our entire interaction was 15 or 20 seconds. Yet when someone attacks me and I'm, om- I'm helpless, she stands up to defend me? Why would she do that? And after thinking it through, I realized. Because you know how many people walked through that cash register, that aisle, and just ignored her? They were on their phone. Or even if they didn't, they said, hey, how you doing? But how many people gave her value? How many people said thank you? How many people used their words to build another person up? And I happen to have done it. And hey, because of that, she appreciated it. So much so that she was willing to defend a stranger against another stranger. The incredible power of our words. 15 seconds of words. Imagine the connection. Now I'll tell you a little postscript to this story. I wrote an article about this. The article was called Checkout Encounters. And I shared my feelings. And I shared the resolve that I made after that point, which I still keep until today, to always make small talk with the cashier. Never to be on my phone. And if I come there, I'm on the phone, I'll say, you know what? I'm about to check out. It's not respectful. So they see that. Anyways, my article was picked up by a woman by the name of Ariana Huffington. She reached out to me and said, I was touched by your article. I'd love to give you a blogging post at the Huffington Post where I blogged for a bunch of years until they shut down all the blogging on the Huffington Post. I have no idea where all those blogs are. It's okay. But the bottom line is, that is the power of our words. That's my challenge to you as well. Take this checkout challenge. See if you can get off your phone. If you could look the cashier in the eye, make small, even meaningful or unmeaningful conversation. I'm telling you, hundreds of people walk by them, but how many people give them a little bit of human respect. I'll conclude with a little tiny tidbit that happened to me last week. I went to TJ Maxx to do a honeydew list to return some stuff. And the customer service rep was there, you know, going through all the stuff that my wife had, whatever she was doing. She asked me to pick up and whatever. And I just said to him, he was wearing a mask. I wasn't. I said, you know, do I have to be wearing a mask? He goes, maybe, maybe not. And we began talking about COVID. And we had about a 90-second conversation about the cons of COVID. And I shared with him some perspective how COVID was great for me on a certain level. It was sad and, you know, a lot of people died and stuff like that. But personally, I got a chance to get spend time with my children. My children got a chance, my older ones, with my younger ones. And, and he says, you know what? I never thought about it that way. I did have more time with my family. And at the end of the conversation, we're finished. He looks at me and he says to me, God bless you. And I said, thank you. That's really kind of you. God bless you too. And I walked away thinking to myself, why did he just say God bless you? Why did I get his blessing? Very simple because I talked to him. It was the end of a long work day and someone gave him, a, like you say in Hebrew, a little haracha, a little bit of value. Look at the power of our words. Let's take this to heart. Let's upgrade our lives and let's change the world around us with positive world power. If you liked this podcast, please share it with your family and friends. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your family and friends. If you loved it, Why not sponsor an episode? Contact sponsor at kolatorakula.com. That's sponsor at K-O-L 
A-H-A-T-O-R-A-H-K-U-L-A-H.com. Until next time.